So our story this morning, for those of you who don't know what we're doing, we're just touching on some of the main stories, true stories, every single one of them that we find throughout the scripture. And at this stage, having been along this journey for a couple of years, we are looking at the rebuilding of the temple, the story we find, the narrative found in <clears throat> Ezra chapter 3. And we'll be looking from verse 7 to 13. Now, rebuilding the temple implies that it has already been destroyed. The first temple that was destroyed, we know, was Solomon's temple. And there's a picture on the screen for you that it was destroyed around about 587 before Christ by the Babylonian Empire during its conquest of the kingdom of Judah. It was at that time Daniel, and we've been looking at Daniel for the last few weeks. Daniel and some others, many others, were carried off to Babylon. And today's story, we're having a look at this uh, rebuilding of the temple, at least the laying of the foundations for that rebuilding, uh, which came to be known as the second temple, which was expanded at a later time into Herod's temple. And there we have some visuals of what Herod's temple might have looked like at the time. Um, cell phones weren't around then, so we couldn't take any, any snaps. <laughs> That temple stood, as we do know, on the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem, and it was there between about 516 years before Christ up until it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 after Christ. So probably about 30 years or so after Jesus, that temple was completely destroyed by the Romans. Now, Jewish eschatology, in other words, what they're looking forward to, and also many Christian quarters believe that the now non-existent second temple will be replaced in the future by a third temple in Jerusalem. And we know there are many groups feverishly working towards the day that that is supposed to happen. Even the items to go into the temple have by and large already been made and prepared by groups known as the Temple Institute and others right down to what the priests have to wear. I remember seeing on the bottom right of your screen there that magnificent menorah in Jerusalem on display a few years ago. Uh, so all of these things are there ready, waiting for the day that this new temple is built. Before we talk about that new temple, let's go back to the scripture in Ezra chapter 3. I told you to read from verse 1, but we'll just pick up the second half of that from verse 7. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work, appointing Levites 20 years of age and older to supervise the buildings of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the descendants of Hodaviah and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. 
When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with their trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great, great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you would ignite in our hearts an expectation uh, of your truth and your, your life coming to us as we understand, as we try to understand, empowered by your spirit, the words that you have written. In Jesus' name. One can only picture the seemingly chaotic scene. Some people shouting for joy and the older ones weeping. This entire event was most probably bittersweet, especially for the older ones who had seen the first temple. They are the ones you see who are weeping because perhaps they remembered what the old temple looked like and the start to a new temple was most likely just a pitiful, ugly version of the original. Or maybe they're weeping tears of gladness that God has finally given them a temple. Anyway, we have this huge, indistinguishable noise. As I mentioned earlier, there's this movement just waiting in the wings to begin the building of a third temple. This was the second temple that they were seeing the beginnings of, that we know was destroyed, as I mentioned, in 70 AD. But let's talk about this third temple that both Jewish and Christians are looking forward to. The biggest stumbling block, of course, is the current status of the Temple Mount. Temple Mount, as you know, is, or don't know, is managed by Muslims, funded by Jordan. Jews' visits are often prevented or mostly considerably restricted. Jews and other non-Islamic visitors can only visit from Sunday to Thursday and then only four hours each day. Visits to the mosque are not allowed. Uh, several years ago, maybe 12 or 15, when I was there on one of my trips, we were allowed into the <laughs> one of the mosques. And as I entered, I just got this, this overwhelming smell of stinky feet <laughs> as you enter because obviously their shoes have to be left behind and the whole place is ornately carpeted and as I walked into this place it was just like <laughs> not so good for <laughs> for daily worship anyway if you're a Jew and you want to visit the temple mount you have to be accompanied by the temple guards, the Muslim guards and policemen, Jordanian guards. 
the mosque site on the Temple Mount, where the new temple is supposed to be, where the previous two temples were. It's the largest mosque uh, place of worship in the world. It's only the third holiest site in Islam behind Mecca and Medina. It's regarded as the place where Muhammad visited one night and he left there on his angelic horse and spent the night chatting to God in heaven. By the way, Jerusalem is not mentioned at all, not even once in the Islamic Bible. So it's kind of a little bit of a sore point that they should have the influence that they have with over some area that they're not even mentioned in their scriptures. Anyway, the chances of anything being built, a third temple being built right now, are quite slim. And this would only happen uh, with considerable conflict taking place. I mean, anyone attempting to rebuild the temple will probably cause the ignition of the war of all wars. Besides that, interestingly, most of the conservative Jews believe that a rebuilt temple will only happen when Messiah comes. So most of the Orthodox Jews do not believe this is going to happen before Messiah comes. They just missed the memo by about 2,000 years. We'll talk about it. I just mentioned the so-called third temple because I think we've totally missed the point of Jesus if we are still looking for a third temple. Let's go on to see what Jesus said himself about the temple. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples, Mark 13, 1 and 2, said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? They were talking about Herod's temple, the second temple that Ezra had started. Do you see these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. There's no sign of the temple of Herod on that temple mount. Not one stone was left. The story goes that when the Romans came and set fire to the temple mount in 70 AD when they overtook Jerusalem, they set fire to that area and the gold in the temple melted and ran between the cracks of the stones and they were desperate enough to get to the, to the gold that they literally pushed all those stones off to, to acquire the gold that had, had, had gone in between. Interesting. In other words, Jesus says, what is here now will be no more. If Jesus was going to talk about a third physical temple one day, now would have been a good time. He says nothing. He says, what is here? Every single thing will be thrown down. We have a story in John chapter 4 where Jesus is meeting with a Samaritan woman. And the woman says to him, Sir, John 4, 19, I can see you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet 
A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything. Jesus declared, I who speak to you am He. Now, we're only talking about the third temple because I know there's so much literature out there. And I know there are so many passionate believers out there who cannot wait to, uh, to see the establishment of the third temple. And yet the scriptures are so clear. Jesus says there's no need for this. The time has come. You don't have to worship there where the temple was or is at that stage. You don't have to worship here where the Samaritans will worship. God is spirit. And the true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. Luke 17, in talking about the kingdom of God, once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God doesn't come with careful observation. There's not something physical that you can see. He says, nor will people say, yeah, it is, or there it is. Why? Because the kingdom of God is within you. John chapter 2, the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered, destroy this temple. Now they're standing at the temple. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. That's the extension, Herod's extension, that Ezra had started. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. They believed the scriptures and the word Jesus had spoken. So if you still don't get it, the third temple is Jesus. It's his body. And who is his body? We are His body. We are the temple of God. Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, we have more clear explanations. Verse, chapter 8, verse 10, quoting Jeremiah 31. The writer of Hebrews says, This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel. After that time declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Verse 13 says, By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Chapter 9, verse 1, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. That was part of what they did. The first temple... The second temple, Herod's extended temple, and now he says the first covenant, that was the first covenant, with all its regulations, had an earthly sanctuary. Verse 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 8, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was standing. 
verse 11, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of the goats and bulls and ashes of heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may received, receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Friends, the new covenant does not need a physical temple in which to do anything. There's so many of our modern prophets and apostles and authors who are writing about this physical new, test, a new temple that has to be there in order for whatever to take place. Jesus says no more need for a temple. The writer to the Hebrews says no more need for a temple. What does the apostle Paul says? say? Well, let's have a look. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. Remember in Ezra chapter 3 verse 11, it said, There was a great shout because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Well, Paul says, No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid. Who is that? Jesus Christ. 1 Peter says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, chosen by God, precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture, quoting Isaiah 28, 16, it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, the stone is precious. To those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, <laughs> a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. But back to our story today, this new temple that so many are looking forward to. What lessons can we learn? Well, the first one we've already discussed Looking forward to a new temple is time wasted. It is already here. Like I said, there's so many believers who are cozying up to the Jewish messianic expectation of a third temple. But God has already revealed the Jewish Messiah temple, and his name is Jesus Christ. 
Ours is not to build a physical building. Ours is to make him known. <laughs> As we read earlier from Jesus, Hebrews and Paul's writing, there is no further temple. 1 Corinthians 3 says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? That word for temple is a little word in the Greek called naos, and it refers to the most holy place. Don't you know that you are the most holy place? Your body. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Don't want to make anyone feel guilty this morning, but <laughs> 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, I want to tell you the objection in case you think I'm wasting your time because you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe I've just read too much and listened too much and all the rest of it. The main objection in Christian quarters to the need for a third temple is, is found in a little passage in Thessalonians when the Antichrist supposedly sets himself up in God's temple claiming to be God. And I'm going to share that scripture with you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report or letter supposed to come from us, saying the day of the Lord has already come. So in 1 Thessalonians, it speaks about the rapture and all the rest, the catching away, snatching away, and now the Thessalonians were all, all upset because they thought maybe it had already taken place. Then he says, this word deceive comes up so often in Jesus' language and in Apostle Paul's language. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. And then he says, this is what's going to happen. That day will not come until the rebellion or the falling away occurs. What did Jesus say? He said, in the end times, when he was talking about the end times, the love of most will grow cold. Not the love of some or the love of many. Jesus said the love of most, those who loved him, the love of most will grow cold. So that day will not come until the rebellion occurs, the falling away. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Your translation might say the son of perdition. He will oppose himself and will exalt himself over everything that he's called God or he's worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. So people say, well, that must mean that there's got to be a physical third temple. But I thought we've resolved this. Who is the temple of the Holy Spirit? The church is the temple. The body of Christ is the temple. So this Antichrist, and they've been around, John writes from the beginning, and it's normally in the plural form, but something's going to happen in the end times in the church that someone will set themselves up proclaiming 
to be God. And who is that person? It's the man doomed to destruction. That, that word, son of perdition or man doomed to destruction, is only found in one other place in the scripture. That's in John 17, 12, and it's used of a man named Judas. Was Judas somebody from the outside? No, he was somebody from the inside. He was the treasurer. He was one of the 12 main guys. He was one of those who had been handpicked by Jesus. So that son of perdition, that one doomed to destruction, came from inside the circle, not from outside. And people are in a tiz right now. You switch on Christian, Christian television and you'll see how many people are naming people in Europe, you know, that must be the Antichrist, or the Antichrist is born, the Antichrist is already alive. John said he's been around since John wrote his letter in the first century. What do we see instead? We see arrogance, we see pride, we see so-called men and women of God standing up and saying, I'm the anointed one. Isn't that what they're saying? When my Bible says you have the anointing, they are saying, come to me and let me lay my hands on you and you can be anointed like I am. That's what they say. Friends, that's the Antichrist. That's setting himself up in the temple of God. And Paul says, watch out that no one deceives you. And I pushed the wrong button amazing i've just got to learn how to get back <laughs> and there i am hallelujah <laughs> thank you jesus ah. almost there okay i don't want to waste too much time on that just to say that looking forward to a new temple it's time wasted and it's already here that's lesson number one if you want to engage me privately on that, you're most welcome. Lesson number two, attempting to build on anything except Christ is vain labor. As we read, Christ is our foundation stone. Anything else will be shown up for what it is. All of our fine buildings, all the hours we put into stuff, our endless pursuits at work and making money and everything else, it's all gone in an instant. And if I haven't done it on, based on the foundation who is Christ, it's all in vain. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, if what he has built on the foundation who is Christ Jesus, it will survive. He will receive his reward. If it's burnt up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. We dare not build on anyone other than Christ. C.T. Studd, a British missionary to China, India, and Africa, he actually died in Africa, in the Congo in 1931, wrote the following little poem entitled, Only One Life will soon be passed. Let me read it to you. Only uh, one life will soon be passed. It goes, two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. 
Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life, it will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life, it will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life, it will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. When at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, "'Twas worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Our encouragement this morning is to do everything only as unto the Lord. Unlike Ezra's day, looking for a physical representation of the presence of God, our job is to focus on the foundation. Tempting to build on anything except Christ is vain labor. And very quickly in our lesson number three, the noise of tears and joy should still resonate today. Verse 12 and 13 again, the older priests and Levites, family heads who had seen the former temple, wept aloud while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of shouts of joy from the sound of weeping. Tears of sorrow and joy, crying over what's been lost, and joy over what's here and what's coming. For me, one of this modern generation's chief sins, sins that we need to cry over, is the familiarity of God. We have falsely concluded that we deserve God's loving attention. We are entitled. God must act. God must bless. God must heal. He must move in response to our demands. I've got news for you. That's not so. God is God. Instead of tears over what was and what should be, 
usually our only tears are in frustration of God not doing what we think he should do when we think he should do it. Oh, how we need tears of repentance in the church again. And maybe tears of joy too, shouts of joy over the amazing gospel truth of salvation in Christ our Lord. Not doing our best to change scripture to suit our lifestyles, but rather changing us, allowing God to change us to line up to his word. We need shouts of joy over that salvation in Christ alone. I know it's easy to become discouraged and distracted when we think about the condition of the church today. I watched some visuals this past week of uh, transgender cross-dressers or whatever parading up and down the aisle of a church in America with shouts of cheers and applause from the congregation. And my heart just broke. I thought, is it re have we really got so far from the gospel that the church would embrace uh, wickedness? And then I was encouraged, and I encourage you with this scripture. Jesus said, <laughs> I will build my church, and the gates of Haiti will not overcome it, will not prevail. Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my church. And whatever you see and whatever's happening around us, it doesn't have to worry us because Jesus himself determined, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Be encouraged. Let me summarize very quickly. Lesson number one, looking forward to a new temple, wasting time. You're wasting your time. It's already here. <laughs> Rather, do not be deceived by what's happening in the temple. Lesson number two, attempting to build on anything except Christ. You're wasting your time again. Make sure that your job, going to work every day, getting to work at 5 to 8 when you start at 8 o'clock and leaving work at 5 past 4 when you're supposed to finish at 4. When you're doing everything, you're doing it as though you're doing it for the Lord. Amen? Not trying to cut quarters. Anything else? You're wasting your time. How we long for tears of repentance in the church and tears of joy as we celebrate continually our great salvation in our Savior.